All right, Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah chapter 12. The last hour we kind of finished Jeremiah chapter 11. I mean, to the best of our ability. Remember, the goal here is not verse by verse. And the reason for that is because of the complications with Jeremiah, all the difficulties with the book, not being in chronological order, all the different genres, all, no, who's speaking to whom. Um, if you get too much into the weeds here, you miss the overall picture. So we're trying to get through the book of Jeremiah by the end of the summer. But will we be successful? I don't know if we'll be successful in finishing by the end of the summer. But hopefully, whenever we do finish it, hopefully it will prove to be somewhat beneficial. Uh, and hopefully, we will all gain something from it. And speaking of beneficial, sometimes people can, you know, you can question what are we actually accomplishing in church? You know, what, what are we actually accomplishing in church? And I, throughout my Christian life, I have had a, I've kind of changed my perspective a little bit on sometimes what is going on in churches or not going on in churches. There used to be a time that whenever you would studies or surveys would come out that would talk about all the problems in Christianity, that people are biblically illiterate, theologically illiterate, they're illiterate to church history, and they're illiterate to all of those problems, I would put the blame at the foot doorstep of churches. I'd say, well, churches don't teach this stuff. Churches don't do this stuff. And I would blame the church, blame the church, blame the church, blame the church. And so I started from, from the very first almost night here at this church. I said, we're going to do things completely different. If we're going to be like other churches, there's no point in existing because there's 200 and something churches around here. So I was always like, the people who want something different will come here. And the people who don't want something different We'll go somewhere else. Lots of people show up here saying they want different. And then they find out that they don't want such different. different. So I used to put the blame on the church. And I was like, I'm going to fix it. We're going to teach doctrine, theology, church history. We're not going to be afraid of any question. We're going to work on the text. We're going to do it, right? That that was going to case. Now, you know, I'm a little bit more jaded now going, you know, I don't know if people even really want that. But, But now my view is not so much, I don't put the blame so much on the church. I put the blame now on the individual Christian because really in 2023, there's no excuse for a Christian not to know anything because the information is readily available. So on the podcast, on a lot of things, I've, I've been called just, sometimes I kind of, and I know this is more a pragmatic approach, but sometimes I look and go, you drive past the church building and you ask yourself, how much did it cost to build that? And how much does it cost to maintain it? How much does it cost to pay all the people on staff? How much does it cost to do this and this and this and this? And then you have to ask yourself, what are people actually getting inside that church? What are they really getting? Like when you, when you break it down, a month of teaching, what are they really walking away with versus how much money it costs to operate a church for one month? And in my estimation, in some cases, I don't know if it's really worth it. Right? I don't know if it's really worth it. So, uh, and the podcast, I've done a lot. I've done it now, I think, two times, maybe, maybe three times over all the years. And I ask people, when it comes to your spiritual growth, when it comes to your learning, when it comes to anything, is it the local church or is it something else? And yet, I've yet to receive one email where someone says, no, I learned and grew because of the local church. Every single email, and you're talking hundreds and hundreds it's outside the local church, outside the local church. In fact, I received an email on July the 14th at 10.50 p.m. They said that I can read this, just I can't name the person. Okay, so I'm going to give their, okay, no, I'm not going to give their name. Okay, But this is what they just sent to me. In five to six years that I've been a Christian, nearly everything I've learned about the Bible and about church history, I learned outside of my local church. I learned about the Trinity, the cults, and church history from James White. I learned about the LGBT issue, the abortion issue, and the role of women in the church from Allie Beth Stuckey. I learned about the danger of CRT and woke ideology from Daryl Harrison, Virgil Walker, and Vadi Bauckham. In addition, I've listened to countless hours of Wretched Radio, Line of Fire, Renewing Your Mind, Doug Batchelor sermons, Alistair Begg sermons, John MacArthur sermons, Steve Lawson sermons, and many messages from Seventh-day Adventist website, Audioverse, and from Sermon Audio. Needless to say, I don't go a day without listening to your podcast. In the year 
the, in, in the year and a month I worked at a warehouse, I spent most of the many hours I toiled at my workstation listening to expository sermon series on multiple books of the Bible. I went through Luke, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, most of 1 Timothy, James, 1 John, and Job. Furthermore, I spent over a year listening to preachers on sermon audio going through the Pentateuch. Right now, I'm in the midst of a, of a years-long verse-by-verse study of the Bible using chiefly the Seventh-day Adventist commentary and the Matthew Henry Bible commentary, but also using the numerous commentaries I've bought over the last year and a half. In essence, I've turned my MacBook Air into my personal seminary. I hope to one day take what I've learned and turn it into a podcast of my own. My own. And then here's the last sentence. If anyone thinks that the American church is in the business of equipping saints... You played yourself. That's depressing. I know. I said this is the conflict. A lot of that content comes from churches. So if those churches didn't exist, then the content wouldn't. So, but it's a it's a it's a complicated thing because on one hand. Nobody, nobody who's ever emailed me says it's the local church. Nobody. Nobody's ever said, no, the local church is where I learned it. But in a roundabout way, that, that's what she's saying. That's what we're saying. That's, that's the kind of the conflict here, right? It's churches somewhere. It's just not their local church. Now, even in my own Christian life, all of my discipleship was not in the local church. It wasn't. I, I'm sorry. The discipleship class that First Baptist Church at Tuscola had well, I was the only person who showed up, okay? I was the only one there. It was Sunday evenings at 5, and it was basically how to witness to people. I, w- I didn't learn doctrine, theology, church history, nothing. So I learned all of that. Well, Miss Mac, a, little, a lot of it, and then the rest of it was, well, a- a- other stuff, right? So, so it really calls into question what's going, on in, what's going on in a local church. On one hand, clearly all of that learning comes from churches. So in that hand, you have to say, well, then churches are valuable. But then why are people not learning it in their local church? It's really a weird, like, in other words, there's not an easy answer, right? Because on one hand, I used to, I, now I still put the blame on the individual now, because now everyone with a phone, you have a seminary on, in your hand. Like, there's, there is nothing you cannot learn. Like, it's just, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, there's so much content, I mean, Every day on just say just say the sermons 2.0 app and uh, there's probably 500 sermons added every day. I mean, like, okay, and then you you can go on the Edify Christian Podcast app. They have two million Christian podcasts. All right, I can I can go Sermon Central or Sermon.net their app. Who knows how many th- hundreds of thousands? I can go on and on and on and on and on and on. All, all the writings of the Church Fathers they're available on your phone. All the writings of the Puritan they're available on your phone. I mean, Greek, Hebrew, Bible Dictionary, Bible Cyclopedia. If you don't know something, stop blaming the local church. Okay, it's on you. Okay, so I I used to be much more, you know, I used to be. Blame the church. Now I blame the individual. But it does call into question, how do, how do you, like on one hand you want to say, well, the church is not doing its job, but then all the learning that you get comes from churches. So then is it, which churches are the ones that should be, should be, should function? I, I don't know. Which ones, like which ones are doing the job? I just know this. All I can do, and I've tried my best to make sure that our church is one of those churches that people do benefit from, right? That's the one, that's all I can do. All I can do is stand here and say, we're going to go as in-depth as we can. And, the, and, and that when people list all of those things they listen to, I just want us to be somewhere in the middle of that, right? And we were in the middle of that email. We were in the middle of the email. So at least we're in the middle of that group, right? And to be named with that group is still so, is somewhat impressive that we're named with that group. But if you take the numbers of people who listen to us, which, you know, we're, top, we're now the top 5% of all podcasts in the world. So we're in the top 5%. That means we're above 3 million other podcasts. That's insane to even think about it, considering if you drove past here, you would think nothing is going on in here. But... If we can accomplish that, great. But it, it, I just, I think it's something that now, I think the world right now, there, there's a transitioning happening because more and more people are not going to church. Church attendance is down everywhere, right? And more and more people are tuning in and listening to things this way. The only thing they have to realize 
If the church doesn't exist, then these don't exist. Like, I, I, think, I think that's, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Does my podcast exist in the form that it currently is if this church ceases to exist? I don't know if it does. Now, not unless people start, would start, they would have to start financially supporting the podcast or I'd have to monetize it, right? I'd have to monetize it and put ads at the beginning and the middle and the end and then get paid for per listen, okay? Like that, that's the only other way. Right now, like my, my podcasting hosting site constantly asking us to monetize. But like, I don't think a lot of people understand that. You're benefiting from all of that. But if, if that's not being, if, one, if people don't show up, usually the church goes away. Or if the church doesn't go away, someone better be financially supporting it so at least the church can exist so that you can get that teaching even if I'm teaching it to an empty <laughs> building, right? But uh, it's just a weird thing. Like all of that content's there, but it, it doesn't arise from what? A vacuum, right? It's connected to something. So I just thought that I, I, I hope that we have been able to try not, I wish this local, I would hope all of you would say where you learned stuff was from the local church. I hope you would. I hope. None of you ever emailed me to tell me that, but I would hope that you guys, if you ever questioned there, you would be like, no, it was, it was Victory Baptist Church where I learned that stuff. If it wasn't, that would be sad, right? You'd be like, no, I didn't learn anything from Victory Baptist Church. It's all of these podcasts. I'm like, well, what did I do wrong? Okay, but, but, but probably, probably a lot of people who go to church who send those emails, probably their pastors would be like, I, I, what did I do wrong, right? But you hope that people will learn. So all we can do is continue to try to produce so that at least we can say that what happens here is actually valuable. Because I do think you have to ask, what it was it cost to be here versus what you're getting? And I try to make sure that there's no question that you get plenty. And even when you're not here, I mean, how many hours of content? Almost four hours of content per day that I produce. That's, that's a lot of content per day. Uh, so um, hopefully... We, I just wanted to make sure that what we do here is is more valuable than it cost it takes to be here, right? So that so I've always tried to put forth that effort, whether good or bad. I've always tried. So let's then dig in and try to get the most out of this hour, and let's look at Jeremiah chapter twelve. It's only seventeen verses, so we'll probably be done in about fifteen minutes. All right. Now, now with Jer- with Jeremiah chapter twelve, I am going to do something a little different for Jeremiah chapter twelve. I am going to utilize the Explore the Bible Bible Study Guide almost exclusively. I've been, I've been ignoring it, um, even though this is the curriculum I told everyone to get for our study in Jeremiah. I'm going to utilize it uh, just like I'm going to just force myself to go with it. Now, you know what that means. Now, I'm going to read a little bit and then stop and then probably do what? Go do my own thing, going to do my own thing, Right because that's what always happens. But, you know, we'll see. This, this, we may not get past page one here because it's going to raise some major problems here. Okay, but everybody ready? You got your thinking caps on? All right, I'm going to ignore their first sentence here. This is like their theme sentence, and I already have problems with it. I'm going to skip it. Okay, I'm going to skip it. All right, here we go. Traditional wedding vows often include, will you, forsaking all others, be faithful as long as you both shall live? Right. Everybody, anybody familiar with those traditional wedding vows? All right, will you, forsaking all others, be faithful as long as you both shall live? It is a promise of singular and exclusive Devotion. All right, there's a lot we could say right here. I'm going to continue. I'm forcing myself. It is no surprise that in both the Old Testament and New Testament, the covenant of marriage describes God's relationship to Israel and Christ's relationship to his church. Now, here is the sentence. This is the million-dollar sentence. Everybody got their thinking caps on? All right. Are you ready for a massive theological debate and arguing and everyone disagreeing with me? 
because that's what always happens, right? Okay, here we go. When a person is saved by grace through faith in Christ, that individual enters into a covenant that calls for a singular and exclusive devotion to the Lord. All right, now, they're utilizing the covenant of marriage and what one enters into when they enter into said covenant. Now, to be fair, the only thing they're entering into when they enter into that covenant of marriage would be first, the promises that they decide to place upon themselves, right, which I always say place as few as possible, okay? And the reason I say that is because because you're going to break them anyway, okay? So, all right. So, but you are would be bound, obviously, from a Christian perspective, whatever God places upon the marriage, you would be responsible for that, right? Makes sense. But even those were going to fail in some way, shape, or form, all right? So that's a whole different thing, all right? But they want to take that and then come over to salvation. Now, in salvation, when we enter into a covenant, I want you to think about this. In fact, if you have paper, I want you to grab it and write this down. What are the elements of the covenant of salvation? I'll give you a time to just think this through. We may not get any further than this, and that's okay. I know we need to finish chapter 12, but this is kind of an interesting approach that the the study guide took. And as soon as I saw this, I was like, hmm, this is interesting. Okay, all right, well, now we're approaching it. See, that's why you come to church, see? See, you learn something in the local church, right? Okay, and people who don't go to the local church, maybe we'll hear it, learn something. What are the elements when you entered into it? Because do we we speak of salvation as entering into a covenant, right? What are the elements of that covenant of salvation? What are those elements in the old covenant? Over and over and over, the elements go something like this. We're kind of paraphrasing, but it goes basically something like this. You obey, you get what? Blessing. You disobey, you get what? Curses. That's the old covenant. And we know how that played out. How did that play out? Failure. Okay, why did it, why did it involve failure? Because it was law. All right, just, I, wanna, I cannot stress this. It's this basic theology 101, all right? Wherever the law is, there will be failure. We do not keep the law before salvation. And I know this 99% of churches will disagree with this. We don't keep the law after salvation. And if you think you do, you're a liar. Therefore, you're breaking the law. Okay, so there we go. All right. So either way, you're breaking the law. All right. But when it comes to now the new, we call it the new covenant. We enter into a new covenant. What, what, what's, what's the elements of that covenant? What, what, what's the parts of it? Okay. All right. So there's a, the part, part of the uh, covenant is belief or faith. Okay. All right. Do I? Christ alone. All right. I don't think, I think what we're getting ready to find out is we're not going to have a lot of agreement here. Okay. <laughs> we're going to have, our, our, our elements are going to be like, a lot, okay? Okay. Well, I think. Okay, so you go ahead. Okay. All right. So you're throwing out a lot of elements. You're going to focus on which element? Okay. So I think we can see that there's possibly what some people will do is you could you could have two possible categories within the new covenant. Some people would say there's the elements of what Christ did, right? So in the new covenant, what did Christ do? He paid for our sins, right? He died, right? His his obedience is available to us. And then our element is faith. And then by faith, all of those blessings, all of that obedience, all of that forgiveness, all of that is now ours. Now, some people say then there's an additional element, though, that you must do this. This implies... That when you enter into that covenant, not only, I guess you get salvation, but then you are called to a singular devotion. Now that sounds good. That preach is good. 
But come on, let's just be honest. Has anyone ever entered into a singular devotion for God? Now, if you say you have, we need to talk afterwards. One, you need to write a book immediately. Okay, I get 70% of all the, the, you know, the money because, you know, I'm the one coming up with the idea. But I mean, if you, because if you figured out have a singular devotion with God, I mean, that's a massive accomplishment, right? Now, is that a part of the, is that a part of the new covenant? Is the new, does the new covenant demand a singular devotion? Or is the covenant simply made up of, this is what Christ did, believe on him, and it is now yours. But is it demanded in the covenant or is it demanded subsequent to the covenant? So that's the kind of question. Well, no, that's, that's true. Good point. That's a good point. Christ did have a singular devotion to the Father. All right. Well, I, I guess the right way we would have to raise the question. It's just weird that they're bringing this up in Jeremiah 12. So what would we have to even approach this to try to do? Now, this is not part of the sermon, so this is all free, okay? All right. But I think, I think now I, we, we, we kind of walked ourselves into kind of a corner here. Right? It's all your fault, right? It's not my fault, okay? We need to kind of, what are the main passages that speak of supposedly the covenant of salvation? Well, well, the first we would possibly, everyone first is going to immediately run to where? I mean, where, where's the first place everyone's going to run to? Well, you got to go to Jeremiah, right? Okay, because that's the, the covenant passage. Now, there's a lot of problems with this covenant passage that nobody wants to address. Find it, everyone find it in Jeremiah. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a major problem. But, you know, nobody wants to ever talk about that. Is it 31? Yeah, y'all should know it by now because we've, we've had, it's caused us lots of problems, has it not? Yeah, it starts in 31, does it not? Yeah, Jeremiah 31, 31. Let's look at it. All right. Jeremiah 31, 31. Now, first and foremost, we know this book is written to whom? It's to Judah primarily, right? Okay. So clearly this is going to be, well, we're going to find out really quick, right? Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. Okay, all right. Now, now, we're, now we know the old covenant. There's plenty of elements of the old covenant. Now, we could get into this some, well, we get into all kinds of arguments about the covenants. We could, it could drive ourselves crazy. But let's just say there's a, clearly an element of different covenants in the Old Testament. I'm going to use different covenants. Those who believe in covenant theology only believe there's one. Okay, I understand all of the debates. But clearly, there are parts of covenants in the Old Testament where it's like, do this, you get blessing. Don't do this, you basically are going to die. All right? So now, Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, and I will make a new covenant. And who's he going to make the covenant with? House of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, I don't care. I'm, I'm sorry. This is where I get myself in trouble with reform people. I get myself in trouble with everyone. I'm sorry. I believe when it says he's going to make it with the house of Judah and the house of Israel, that's who he made it with. And the only reason, and the reason I know that is because whenever I read about the house of Judah and the house of Israel throughout the entire book of Jeremiah, it is referencing the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So I cannot then turn that into, oh, no, that's the church. That's not the church, ladies and gentlemen. That's Judah and that's Israel because that's literally what it says, okay, all right? Now, and then how do I know for sure that I'm on the right track? Very next verse, not according to the covenant that I made with. That's not the fathers of the church. That's whose fathers? Uh, The fathers of Israel and Judah. And how do I know that that's who he's referring to? And the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt which is my covenant, they break, although I was a husband, unto them saith the Lord. Okay, so clearly, he's now contrasting the old covenant, they did what with it? They broke it. So he's going to make a new covenant. Now, just thinking caps on, thinking caps on. If the new covenant is going to be more successful than the old covenant, there's one thing that you think has to be changed almost immediately. Because the old covenant that they broke, clearly there's a law element to it yes so the new covenant is going to have to either 
do one or two things. One, it's going to have to remove the demands of the law because as long as law is there, we're going to do what? Break it. And Israel would still break it, right? Or he's going to have to do something miraculously in order so that they can obey it. And then they would have to obey it perfectly because if they violated in any way, they would break the covenant. So how is this going to play out? Well, what happens? But, the, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them uh, unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And that seems to imply that possibly, this seems to imply possibly, that God's going to do something in them that they will actually be able to do what? Keep it. That they can actually obey, meaning that the laws may still be there. Correct? All right? But we would have to immediately say, okay, however this plays out, there's got to be, like clearly this has not happened yet. Right? Because when Israel and Judah came out of the, or when, not Israel, they never come out of the Syrian captivity. When Judah comes out of Babylonian captivity, does this magically happen and they start obeying? We know they don't start obeying because what happens not long after they come out of Babylonian captivity? Well, yeah, sooner or later, they're right back under control of, of Rome. And then what happens from the Roman captivity? They wiped off the face of the earth. And now when you go to Israel, does everyone know God and no one needs to be taught? And No. So clearly you could argue this covenant has been made, but it has not been, it's not been brought to any kind of fulfillment. Now that leads the early church fathers then to do what with it? Say then it wasn't for them, it was meant for us. But if it's meant for us, then you have to say, well, we know God, but well, we still need to be taught and we still don't obey. So even that would still be a problem. Right now, what's another passage that speaks of the new covenant in the Old Testament? Just quickly, about getting a new heart and removing a heart of stone, giving you a heart of flesh. It's uh, in another book. Starts with an E. I don't know. Is it Ezekiel? Look it up and tell me. I mean, that's a pretty good guess, right? How many books start with an E in the Old Testament? We've looked at all of these in the past. Okay, someone's quick on there. Look at that. Did you find it uh, the old-fashioned way, or did you go electronic? Okay. Okay. Well, we'll go with 30, or we're going to go with 36, I think, to start is where I would, I would typically go, right? Because I think that's kind of where it starts. I could be wrong. I think it's 3625, okay? That's where I want to start, right? Um, Nick, you went 3715, right? Okay, yeah, we'll get there as well, I think. All right, let's go 36. All right, here we go. 3625. Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you. Now stop right there. Who is the you? Someone look at the context and see if you can identify the you. Oh, where do you see that? Oh, look at that. All right, so we have identified. So this is another promise to whom? To Israel. Okay, now what is he going to do? You got to sprinkle them with clean water and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Now when he says he's going to cleanse them, what's the question? Is he going to cleanse them of the guilt of these Sins, or is he going to cleanse them from the action, meaning they will never commit the action again? Well, if he was going to cleanse them from the action, clearly it has never happened. And even if you try to spiritualize that and put that to the church, are we cleansed of all of our idols? No, all right, so still still there would be a problem. All right, next, what's the next verse? 
A new heart also I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of the flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Now stop right here. This is typically preached to be referring to whom? Come on, if you go to church, if you listen to sermons, this is the church. It's almost always preached that this happened to us in salvation, that you get a new heart. Now, if you got a new heart, what would be the obvious logical question that any good theologian, any good Bible student should ask? Say that again, Emma. Why do we still sin? Because if we have a new heart, that should mean, that should basically refer to then the eradication of the old nature. So then why do we sin? Church after church preaches this as referring to us. Well, if we get a new heart, why do we sin? I don't know about you. Do you still sin? Where does that derive from? You see, Jesus talks about from the heart. From the heart. If I'm still sinning, that seems to imply that I did not get the heart transplant. But yet this is preached in almost every church. As applying to us. I stand, and I reject that first on the grounds of the actual words of the text. Who is the promise for? Israel. Has this happened to Israel yet? No. Okay, so wait a minute. We, how do we understand this, right? Now, I, look, I understand this creates major theological problems. I understand. But I'm not afraid to, look, the thing about this church is, I'm not going to be afraid to just face the problems head on. Right? Look, here's my approach to, to, to theology and to the text. Is number one, I don't care about teams. Right? I don't have to stand up here and rep the reform team or the non-reform team. I don't have to wear my colors and make sure that I'm on the right side. Because, and I know because I won't rep the team and I won't wear the colors, then, you know, you can get the theological drive-bys where people will attack you and, you know, put a couple of bullets in you because you don't stand on their side. But I don't really care about your side. Because what you typically do, you go to school and you learn the, the, the side, the team, that their perspective, and then you're supposed to just stand behind the pulpit and just regurgitate that side. And you know I don't do that, right? I don't care about the team. I want to figure... I've got any any good Bible student should go. Well, wait a minute. If I've got a brand new heart, and what does the next verse seem to imply about this new heart that it's going to lead to? Verse twenty-seven. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Now, how do I know it's still about Israel? And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Let me make it very clear, ladies and gentlemen. Are they in the land that was promised to them? They have a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. Okay, I don't know how much land mass there is in Israel, what they have. Half of it's split over for the Palestinians. Probably, we probably got counties in Texas bigger. Okay, that's maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but okay. But okay, right. <laughs> probably not. Okay, it's probably pretty close. They they don't, ladies and gentlemen, they don't have the land. Now immediately, I can't turn that over to the church. Makes no sense. One, hey guys, are do y'all keep his commandments? Do you walk in his statutes? Do you keep his judgments and do them? Now, what, the, how, do we, uh, how do we get around that when you apply it to the church? I mean, we're not going to do it perfectly, so then we water it down. That's not, does it say they're going to they're try? It says they're going to do it. And then they're going to be in the land. Right? Right, it's, it's, it's a complete obedience. And then they're going to be in the land. I will also save you from your uncleanliness. I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field that you shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. I mean, come on, lady. None of that has happened. Can everyone agree? Right? Then in 37, what do we have in 37? We have the famous prophecy, right? 
What is this famous prophecy of? Come on, everyone knows 37. It's the valley of dry bones. Ooh, man, I was taught to preach this a lot when I, as, an, as a new Christian and as a new pastor. And how do you preach it? How does that, anyone has ever been to church? How is the valley of dry bones preached? It's a picture of salvation for you. Now, the valley of dry bones. Let's see if we can gather, let's see if you can use your Bible detective skills, right? Hang on, hang on, hang on. Slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. All right, let's just start reading, okay? Don't, don't show off, don't show off, okay? Don't try to look all smart for the people on the internet, okay? All right, here we go. Let's go slow. 37.1, the hand of the Lord was upon me, carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones, And he caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley. And lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest, right? Because that's always the right way to go. If God ever asks you a question, God, you know, right? Just say, God, you know, right? Okay, right? Hey, teenagers, whenever your parents ask you a question, just say, you know. All right, then you can't get busted for anything. All right, that's okay. I'm helping you out. Okay, all right. And they're like, no, we need you to answer the question. They're like, no, why would I do that? That would be so arrogant of me to answer the question because I know you know everything, mother and father. See, there you go. Does that does that help you? Does... Okay, all right. They're like, no, we need an answer. No, 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 mom and dad. I know you already know the answer. Okay, but that, that's always a good thing to do. All right, verse four. Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, what do we need to try to identify here? What do the bones represent? All right. Now, utilizing your vast biblical knowledge or the internet or Siri, okay, or Alexa or whomever you want to use, right? Find me the answer. Bring me the answer. Who do the dry, what do the dry bones represent? Okay. Of Israel. Now, who's got verses to back up their assumptions? Stephen, Stephen, Stephen is just not backing down. He, I was just seeing if anyone else had a different verse, right? Stephen is committed to verse 11. Why are you so committed to verse 11, Stephen? What is it about verse 11? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm being ridiculous because you would think that anyone who goes to church and would hear the sermon making this about us would kind of go it says right here then said unto me son of man these bones are the whole house of Israel behold they say our bones are dried and our hope is lost we are cut off for our parts now I want to make it very clear this is I don't care what you, pastors can be as creative as they want. This is a prophecy specifically for Israel. And the whole house of Israel includes Judah, north and south, the whole house, the whole nation. Now, preachers will say that this references spiritual Israel, us. They always want to make it about us. They always want to make it about us. But you start destroying these books when you do that, right? Now, what does he say here about them? All right, that was verse 11, right? Okay. Um, and then he says, verse uh, 12, Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the... Once again, I cannot stress to you, the key as a good Bible student, whenever dealing with this, is when almost in every case where God makes some promise to Israel... Within a verse or two, he connects it to the land. The fact he connects it to the land is your hermeneutical clue. You can't connect this to the church because we're not promised land. So that's typically what happens. Land no longer is land. Israel is no longer Israel. And you just start so spiritualizing it. Then I guess, I don't know, then you can't, nothing means anything. Now what what happens after this? And you shall know that I am the 
Lord, and, and when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and I and shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I shall place in you, I shall place you in your, verse 14, and your own land. Then shall you know that I, the Lord, has spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, moreover, and then he goes on and continues, are you getting the idea? So, what's going to happen here? This is the regathering, kind of the resurrecting of whom? Of Israel. Okay, and if you look at, I believe, verse 25, he's going to bring them back together. Go back to verse 22. I mean, I want to read the entire chapter, but I'm skipping around just to get the idea. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them. All, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. What comes along with this kind of re, almost resurrection of Israel is they're no longer what? A divided kingdom. They're brought back and they're going to have a king over them. One king. Oh, I know. Then <laughs> Look what happens. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all of their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them so they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This is a complete restoring of them and them being basically sinless. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. Where did David just come from? David is dead, ladies and gentlemen. So who, who, could, who, could be, who would be the David in this situation, I wonder? Oh, if, it, if it's Jesus, hmm, and he's going to rule over them, and they're going to be one thing, huh, well, he could. I mean, you could, you could go that direction. I'm just saying that kind of sounds like a, a certain theological perspective that not a reformed people mock. A millennial kingdom where Christ rules and reigns for a thousand years. Now I know that's mock, that is mocked mercilessly by many, especially who are reformed, but I don't know how else you get this fulfilled, do you? Okay, and the, what are they going to do? David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they, shall sh- and they all shall have one shepherd. They're going to have one shepherd. Shall also, who, what are they going to do? Walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob. There's the land promise again, right? And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. Now, I'm sorry, I I cannot find... Look, first of all, all of this new covenant language is for whom? Israel. And can we say... I know this is so controversial. I know this is so controversial. Has it happened yet? There's just no way. There's just no way. There's no way it has. All of the, now he may have made the covenant with them. The covenant may have been made. I mean, he's promising the covenant here, but the fulfillment of that covenant is, it ha- so you can see, and now you can see what the early church did. Now the early church, the early church fathers were stuck, right? There was no Israel. So when they read this, they were like, Hey, does anybody know what's going on here? Because it looks like God lied. So then they're like, it's us. It's us. Okay, get it. We got it. So Israel's not Israel. Land is not land. Okay, clearly the perfection there is not really perfection because obviously nobody can do that. So perfection is not perfection. Land is not land. Israel's not Israel. It's all us. And that worked out for how long? 
1948. And then all of a sudden, now to be fair, now let's be fair here theologically. There were certain men who came along, Darby and others, before 1948. That's what makes them like, as much as we may disagree because of dispensationalism, and, and I know some people like to mock all of that and to, to just say it's not academic, it's not intelligent, and, and mock it. It's usually the Reformed people who are the so mocking of it. But let's just be honest. That's pretty awesome that they kind of came along and said, it means Israel. God's not done with Israel. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? God is not done with Israel. What are you referring to? Six million of them were exterminated. Six million Jews were exterminated in World War II. What are you talking about? God done with them. They're so done with them. It's not even funny. And in 1948, what just happened? Now, 1948, we're in 2023. They're still nowhere close to any of this. Nowhere close to any of this, right? I mean, Danzlers, y'all been to Israel. Y'all can testify to everyone if, if they don't have the internet. That's it, still not. It, you didn't go there going, wow, there's no, uh, everyone here believes in God and they're all obeying God. And it, no, 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 it's, it's still, yeah, it, it's a mess. In fact, Jerusalem is divided into three sections, is it not? What are the three sections? The Jewish section, the Islamic sec- section, and the Christian section, and even the Christian section is somewhat divided because sometimes the Christians will fight in some of the holy sites between the different groups, right? Orthodox versus Catholic and all the different... So they're, they're, that's just a divided mess, is it not? Where the temple stood is now a mosque. The Jews, in many cases, are restricted from even going into the area, and they can only go down to the wall and pray at a wall, right? That's the remaining leftovers of what the temple was. The whole thing is a, just a total disaster, It doesn't sound or look like anything like that. So either from you as a Bible student, you go, oh, but it's here for us. But in all of this, do you find something interesting? And all of this new covenant language used here, is there any demand for obedience? It just says that they they will. Meaning then something, and what has to happen? Well, they're gonna, their sinful nature, their heart's going to be completely changed. They don't have to do anything. Nothing. It's all going to be done for them. Because it's clearly obvious that every time they're asked to do something, they don't. All right. Now, that gets us kind of through the Old Testament. Now, where's the first time a new covenant language is used in the New Testament? Oh, we're making massive ground through Jeremiah 12, are we not? Okay. But I'm just saying this. They, 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 they want to talk about the new, the, the new covenant here in, in the study guide. They want to talk about the covenant. All right, well, just let's, let's, we're just going to follow their lead. All right, so where's the first time you hear new covenant language in the New Testament? This, it's got to be in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, doesn't it? That, ha, I think it has to be, right? Am I wrong? Did it say anything? Maybe he uses the word testament and not covenant. Maybe he says the New Testament. But does he not say the New Covenant at some point? Is there any New Covenant language that Jesus talks about? This is the New Covenant. This is the New Something. Oh. Is there something? Is there, is there some language? Please help me out. <laughs> Do we find it in Matthew first, or am I wrong? Does he not say something in Matthew? Either New Testament, New Covenant, Covenant, Testament, something in Matthew, or am I just completely losing it? Okay, well, we'll see here. All right, wait a minute. Let's, let's oh, hang on. Let's see what we find here. Hang on. Let me see what Mr. Goodlett has located on his tablet. Okay, well, yeah, well, I mean, that's a good one. It doesn't mention covenant there, does it? It's going to save his people from their sins. So clearly this is uh, at least pointing in the direction 
doesn't mention covenant or new, but okay. Okay, hey, that gets us somewhere close. Okay, it's Matthew 26, 28. Okay, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. This is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, he doesn't say, doesn't really give us any details, does he? Right? But at least, what is the emphasis on? Well, it's new, but the main emphasis is not on anything they do. It's something that's going to be done for them, which is the remission of sins through his blood. All right? That, that doesn't give like, oh, look, there it is, but at least gets us in the same direction. All right? I think if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you're going to find similar language, right? That New Testament or New Covenant, it's, I think it's going to always say New Testament, at least in the King James. It's going to be, probably reference his blood. Right? It's going to reference the Lord's Supper, I'm assuming. Am I correct, or am I making it completely up? If you want to do something, okay, good. If you want to do something, grab the Bible dictionary really quick and just look, look up the word New Testament or New Covenant and see what you find. We're going to run out of time. Uh, the Covenant, okay. All right. Which is interesting. Just, but grab the Bible dictionary really quick and just look up new. Maybe I want to look up New Covenant, New Testament. They're probably going to refer to the books of the New Testament. Yeah, let's try that. Emma's taking us to the 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 critical passage, but I'm trying to make sure we cover everything before we get to that controversial passage. Emma wants us to go right to the controversy. Okay. Okay, page three hundred seven. All right, I'm just, I'm just going to grab it really quick. Oh, we're going to run out of time. See, you people cause all these problems, right? See, we should already be done. And y'all, y'all, y'all. Oh, the new uh, Hebrews is full of it, and it creates so many problems. You said 30, what, what page? 307? Oh, there we go, covenant new, all right? Here we go. Let's just read this really quick and we'll end with this. All right? Here we go. 307, the uh, Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary. The new agreement God has made with mankind based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, immediately, I, I'm, I'm a little worried because they just now took the covenant and made it with whom? They just made it with all mankind. Okay, I got a problem. What we do know is obviously the new covenant mentioned in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there's no way to get around it. That's for Israel. I, 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 don't, I don't care what the dictionary says, okay? That, they're like, there's nothing in that text that says... He, of course! This is, the, this is the thing that drives me crazy about Christianity. I don't understand how Jeremiah 31, 31 has become so convoluted. If there's ever... Look, there's a million things in the Bible I don't understand. But I can understand, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. If I can't understand that, I mean, I hate to say this, but if I can't understand that, I give up. I mean it. I'm just, I'm done. I'm just done. Right? Right? It's kind of like me and Sarah that time when everybody was arguing with us and we're like, forever means forever, right? We're like, it means forever. It's like, if, it's like there's some things you just like, if it doesn't mean what it says, then I just quit. Like, just take my Bible, take the pulpit. I'm just going to go home. I don't know how Jeremiah 31 and 31 can be so convoluted. I don't know, but all right, let's just read this. All right, here we go. The new agreement God has made with mankind based on the death of res- and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The concept of a new covenant originated with the promise of the prophet Jeremiah that God would accomplish for his people what the old covenant had failed to do. Well, I do believe that it starts there, and I do believe he's going to do, he promises he would do what the old covenant failed to do. I do agree with that. Under this new covenant, God would write his law, now see, here we go, on human hearts. The promised action suggested a new level of obedience, a new knowledge of the Lord, and a new forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm going to lose every bit of composure. It wasn't a new level of obedience that was promised. It was perfect obedience. They have to say a new level because they know nobody will actually 
accomplish perfection. And then not only that, they stole it from whom? Israel. They just kicked them out and made it about all of humanity. Next paragraph, the New Testament, which itself means new covenant, interprets the work of Jesus Christ as bringing this promised new covenant into being. In Luke twenty-two twenty, when Jesus ate his Passover meal at the supper with his disciples, he spoke of the cup as the new covenant in my blood, which the, Paul, which the apostle Paul recited uh, the tradition he had received concerning the last supper. He quoted these words of Jesus uh, about the cup as the new covenant in my blood. Okay, so meaning, I, I got no problem. God made a promise, right, in the new covenant to Israel. Jesus takes the language and connects it somehow to his blood, right? Now, you can't say when Jesus says the new covenant in his blood, you can't say immediately that all of the fulfillment happened because it clearly didn't happen for Israel, Right? It didn't even happen immediately for the church. But the blood somewhere comes into play. I got no problem with that. All right. Next, we got one paragraph to go. Yep. All right. Here we go. But the epistle to the Hebrews, now this is where everything goes crazy, gives the new covenant more attention than any other book in the New Testament. It includes a quotation of the entire passage from Jeremiah 31, and it says uh, Hebrews 8, 8 through 12. See also Hebrews 10, 16 through 17. Jesus is also referred to by the writer of Hebrews as the mediator of the new covenant, Hebrews 9 and 12. The new covenant is a better covenant established on better promises, rests directly on the sacrificial work of Christ according to the Hebrews. The new covenant accomplished what the old could not, removal of sin and cleansing of the conscience. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross thus makes the old covenant obsolete and fulfills the promise of the prophet Jeremiah. Now, they don't do a lot of helping us, do they? Well, in fact, you can kind of see what they're, 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 going to attempt, they're attempting to do. All of those promises we read about in the Old Testament are for the church, and it's going to be fulfilled, but guess what? Not, we're not going to be completely obedient. That destroys the entire power of the promise, is it not? And guess what? Let's ask yourself. Are you any better than Israel under the old covenant? That doesn't seem to make any sense then, right? Isn't that a better covenant with a better promise? Now you could say you're better off positionally, but you're definitely not better off practically. And those verses seem to promise that you would be better off Practically. So meaning, I will, I'm going to argue that the true fulfillment of the new covenant has not even come close to coming to pass. That's got to happen where? The future. So then what, how does the new covenant apply to us? Now, according to, and I'll just briefly mention it, we're kind of grafted in, right? So I will argue any promise of the new covenant for us is more about the blood of Christ and being cleansed from all of that positionally, clearly not practically. All right, we'll have to stop there. I know that kind of leaves it as a, but wait, we'll come back tonight and then we'll see if we can get past the, that first paragraph in the study guide. Right? We, we made it really far, didn't we? We didn't even get to read Jeremiah 12. But that's okay. You're going to talk about the covenant. We, we have to cover that stuff. We have to cover that stuff. All right. So when will Israel finally get the fulfillment of that new covenant? It has to be the millennial kingdom. That's the only thing. I don't have any other answers. Yeah. Right. Then they'll be regathered, one nation. A king will be ruling over them, Jesus. And then they'll get the land. And clearly it implies that they're going to be completely transformed internally. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, we are scratching the surface of theological truths that we do not even begin to pretend that we truly understand. We're just barely scratching the surface on some very complicated 
issues. Let it humble us and let us let it force us to dedicate ourselves to really pursuing this understanding even with more intensity as we read the rest of the book of Jeremiah, seeking a better understanding of the new covenant. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...